Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. Last time on the podcast, we talked about cell number seven, the torture chamber. When they moved my father into a solitary confinement cell in a part of the Wallow prison they called the Heartbreak Hotel, the first American POW was finally able to make contact with him. This was a big event for my father, and it helped to boost his morale. This episode is titled, Who Won the Army-Navy Game? In honor of that man. Shout out, Paul Galani. So let's pick up the story back in the Heartbreak Hotel. Dad, welcome back to the podcast. I appreciate you uh, bearing with me for a third time now. That's great being here. Um, you know, I, I think this is the first um, Yankee Air Pirate uh, podcast we've recorded during a hurricane warning. And so I think the rules of the road are I owe you a bourbon immediately following this uh, conversation this afternoon. Accepted, my friend. All right. Uh I can deliver on that one. I've got a f- big bottle downstairs for you. So uh, last week uh, when we finished talking, uh, you had just moved from the uh, cell number seven, the torture chamber, to the high security area uh, of the prison. And you were describing that cell to me. Um, it wasn't a whole lot better than the torture chamber. Um, there, it seems to me, I remember there was just a couple of concrete pads. Is that correct? To That's lay correct. In? And, uh, you had about five paces t- to walk one direction, turn around and five more paces to walk back. So what? Maybe six feet uh, uh, long. It was about six feet long. And, and how wide? Uh, my guess would be about four feet. Wow. So, so now you're in a six by four foot cell and it, it's now probably been about five days since you were shot down. That's correct. So, uh, and it's early January and is it cold or hot in Vietnam at this point in time? It is cold. And when you're in your underwear and sleeping on cement and it's about 40 degrees, it's very cold. So, so that's the conditions you're in. You're, you're sleeping in your underwear on concrete in cold. And is it open to the air or the windows open to outside? The window is boarded, but it is open to all kinds of draft coming through. And there's a rat hole for drainage <clears throat> at the bottom of the wall by the floor, which sets up a circulation pattern. And to add to, to that, the wounds on my arms and wrists from the uh, torture had become infected. So you're, it's already starting to get infected just four to five days after, after these torture sessions. Absolutely. Uh, scraps and bars did not sanitize the ropes in between use. Wow. Okay. So, uh, you're in a lot of pain. Uh, you, you'd been tortured and beaten a lot. Had, had you had any contact with any other Americans at that point in time yet? I had no contact at all, but I was getting all kinds of noise through the cell wall. 
from the cell next to me. It sounded like a bunch of woodpeckers uh, going crazy. I recalled my Morse code. You can dredge stuff out when you really need it. You can dredge that up. And it wasn't Morse code, so I didn't know what was going on. But there was all kinds of rattling going, uh, pecking going at the wall next to me. And obviously it was some human being since woodpeckers don't like brick and cement. Right. And and how long did that go on? Was that uh, constant uh, tapping the, the whole time? That, anytime the guard was not present in the, in the passageway of, of that wing, that security wing, we called it Heartbreak Hotel. Anytime there wasn't a, a guard there, uh, that wall would be active. Okay. So you're you're in what they they called you all termed the heartbreak hotel area, a high security area of the prison. How do, how do they determine how how were the Vietnamese determining who to keep in the high security area in solitary because you were alone at this point from what I understand and and how do they separate that from the the rest of the camp and the rest of the the pilots? Well, of course, the, this knowledge comes from looking back on it and comparing notes at the time I didn't understand myself. But what they were doing was keeping you isolated while the military interrogators had you and finished with you. And then the political interrogators tried to figure out if they could get any use out of you or not. If you were injured, and now I was injured, they also simply were waiting to see if you were going to live or die because they didn't want to waste too much time and energy on you if you were going to go to your eternal reward. So those three things are what kept you there in solitary. Right. And how long did you stay in solitary before they moved? uh, They either moved you to the general population or at least moved a roommate in with you. I went into a, uh, a satellite camp when they finally moved me after about three weeks when the political interrogators got through with me they moved me over to a place we called the zoo and I was in solitary confinement and isolated for a period of maybe three weeks before I got any contact with someone there right okay so when they moved you to the zoo you were still in uh, solitary though still in solitary but when they moved me to the zoo they gave me my issue of prison clothing, and we can talk about that sometime, Uh, but it did include one blanket. Unfortunately, it was very thin. If you held it up, uh, you could see through it. It looked like you were looking at the stars at night with the light coming through, but it was better than being buck naked. So before they moved you to the zoo, from, from solitary confinement at the Wallow Prison to solitary confinement at the zoo, had you been able to establish... A, a confirmed conver- say, confirmed conversation with another American POW before you left Wallow Prison? I was blessed because the answer to that was yes. At the time, I didn't realize the difficulty. If you were caught communicating, you were immediately sent to Vegetable Vic, tortured, uh, made to write a statement, a confession, all kinds of uh, humiliation type of things, and they exploited you. Uh, so any type of communication was a sign of leadership, which they wanted to destroy. So I, I couldn't quite understand 
how I was being approached. What happened was two guys were sharing a cell in solitary, and the last cell down the end was a place where they washed dishes, and they used the opportunity to dump water and clean themselves. So these two guys are talking to each other, pretending to talk to each other, but really what they're doing is yelling out the window, trying to get in contact with me. And this is a great risk to themselves. Turns out one of them was a guy by the name of Paul Galanti from Richmond, Virginia, and a yeah. gr- graduate of the Naval Academy. And that's a name I know. He, a fantastic guy I've had the opportunity to meet many times. The, the interesting thing was they said the most important question, what's your rank? If I'm senior, I'll take charge. If I'm junior, I'll obey. They had to figure out who the senior ranking officer is in any one of the segments of the prison so they could maintain discipline amongst the prisoners themselves. So the first question was, what's your rank? And, of course, you couldn't talk. They knew you were too scared. It was cough once for yes, twice for no. And so they're going down the line with the rank, and they finally got to to lieutenant commander. And I coughed once for yes, and Paul said, oh, cripes, another senior officer. (laughs) Then the next question was, who won the Army-Navy game? Now, here we are in the middle of a war. We're in the middle of prison. We're in the enemy's capital. And here this boat school boy is asking me, who the hell won the Army-Navy game from two months ago. Who cares? I didn't go to the boat school. I could care less. And, of course, I didn't know. And so he came back with cough once or twice and all of this, and you know, and he went through Army, Navy, whatever, and he got nothing out of me. And he says, not only a lieutenant commander, but a stupid one at that. Uh, that's a funny story. So who, who, who was he in in that room with do you know who the you know, other uh, pilot was you no know, i never did find out who he was with in that other cell but he wasn't wasting time he pressed on and he said all those guys all that noise in the cell next to you are guys trying to contact you they're vietnamese they're good guys they're on our side yeah, I, and that's another story I've heard too. So the the pilot right next to you in the cell next to you was a South Vietnamese pilot. If was I'm not a mistaken, South Vietnamese right? A one Sky Raider pilot. It's not. Was that Nguyen Dot the one that I've met? Right. His uh, Americanized name was Max Nguyen Dot. Okay. And so he was in the in the cell next to you. The cell next to you. In the in the torture chamber area or the max security area in the max security to. area. Okay, got you. So Paul yells at me. They've been trying to get contact with you. They're on our side. Get up and communicate. Communicate at all costs. And then he said, "Tap code box. American Football League quits victorious." Down the side. Tap code. Box. American Football League quits victorious down the side. And 
Then he told me Jim Stockdale, Navy, Robbie Reisner, Air Force were the two seniors that were in contact. Their rules were communicate at all costs. Their rules were to bounce back after you're tortured. We've all been tortured. After you're tortured, bounce back. Don't feel bad. It happens to all of us. Of course, they were too late. I'd already <laughs> been tortured. And then the Vietnamese caught him, hauled him away, and I never saw Paul Galanti again until I had been released, probably five years after I was released. So did did you ever see Paul Galanti, actually, or did you just hear his voice from behind the corner? I never saw Paul Galanti. All I heard was his voice. And And... Did they take him out and punish him because he had been communicating with you? Is that what happened? Uh, both of those guys were hauled out, and they were taken apparently to the zoo and uh, strung up, beaten, made to write something, made to make a tape, and then put in isolation for a while because they had been leading. Yeah. So how how did you ever find out that it was Paul that was talking to you? Did did he, was he able to pass his name to you from around the corner, or how how did that all come about? I found out that it was Paul Galanti when I was on recruiting duty, and it turned out that Paul Galanti was the commander of recruiting uh, district uh, Richmond, and we were at a conference and we were talking about being jailbirds and. He reminded me that I was so stupid I didn't know who won the Army-Navy game. So, and at that point, I still didn't know who won. So he, he knew who he had been communicating with. You just didn't know at the time yourself who, who That is correct. Was. Paul is a lot smarter than I was. Okay. And so um, let's talk about communication a little bit now because— uh, in talking to you over the years, I've really come to understand the importance of communication and sticking together with, with the others there. So what did that do to your morale once you were able to communicate with people? Well, the communication is an awful lot to be of different aspects to it. First thing, it was important to me because I was able to pass my name and that meant that I wasn't going to die alone, unknown, missing in action, never to be found again by you or your mother. So it became tremendously important to me that somebody knew that I made it that far. And once I learned the tap code, I was able to pass my name along to people, get my name into the system. So personally, it was very important. Second of all, to establish uh, the leadership chain of command in any one of the compound satellites or main prison that we were in and establish who the leader was, who was responsible, and what the policies, the resistance policies were, what the escape plans were at the time, the status of those, and uh, what the enemy was after on any one day. For example, permission for a an interrogator or a guard to torture you came from the very top. That's one of the reasons we were very bitter about being tortured for propaganda purposes. 
and it was all done from the highest levels possible. So on any one day, an interrogator may not have permission to torture you, and it was important for you to figure that out. So you'd watch the first guy getting hauled off for interrogation. And if he didn't show up at all, then you knew you everybody was going to be in deep trouble because he probably was being tortured. But if he showed up with a piece of paper to have to write something or an extra cigarette or a big smile on his face, you knew that it was going to be a freebie. Right. So, so this communication thing, again, most of it was through the tap code, correct? Tap code was the basis to it. Remember Paul was saying, you know, a box... And American Football League quits victorious. Well, it took me a couple of days to get out of the Morse code uh, sense and finally realize he was describing literally a box with numbers across the top, one through five, and American Football League quits victorious down the left-hand side. So now I had an alphabet of 25 letters, and was able to tap the row that the letter was in and the number that the letter was. So a B would be first tap, would be one for the first row, and then followed by two taps, the second letter in, AB, American Football League, right? And second letter in was a B. So you were able to now communicate, tapping on a wall, flashing your hand underneath the door, you were able to pin, put pinholes in a piece of paper and, and communicate. A guy could get out sweeping in the yard and sweep the code. Uh, had one guy, Jeremiah Denton, uh, had uh, a hacking. That whole country had TB, by the way, so everybody was hacking and coughing. So he'd have a hack, cough, you know, snot, puke, spit, and it would communicate tap code that way. Right, it... it- when we were talking about this the other day, I, I went home and I wrote that box out myself and I looked at it. It seems like a very slow, very tedious way to communicate. And I can't even fathom being able to comprehend all that myself. I mean, how, how long did that take you to get in a rhythm so you could take those taps and translate it into the letters that are coming through to you well necessity is the mother of an invention if that's the only way you're going to be able to communicate uh, god gave you a brain and you you start engaging with little gray cells and you're making things work pretty good and you pick it up the vietnamese could not uh answer that question they uh they they had they actually put a guard down there, and, and the call-up was shave and a haircut, you'd answer two bits. And there's a rhythm to that shave and a haircut, two bits. Right. Vietnamese could never get that down. They'd go, shave and a haircut, two bits. Well, we knew we had a Vietnamese on the line. So you'd just stay quiet. So you'd shut up. And then uh, they, they knew the tap code, and they were so damnably slow they, they were like elephants plodding across the wall, so it was obvious that it was them. They just did not believe that we could get that amount of information across at the speed that we could do it. And I was slow, but I was able to actually 
uh, conduct the work of the ship uh, quite efficiently with it. And then we, we could back up if we finally got visual contact with each other. We developed a, our own version of the American Deaf Spelling Code. So we turned around and took like, you, know, you raise your index figure, that's number one, well, A, like that. And then you raise your middle finger of your hand, and that's obviously Q. Right. And your thumb up is obviously an R. So we, we took something that made it easy through repetition to be able to teach a newcomer as to uh, what our alphabet was. Then we could, with absolute uh, silence communicate with each other that way right well how, how much of your day was consumed by communication after after you got contacted and learned the tap code i'd say probably about four to five hours uh, a day were involved with communicating because part of your job as a communicator were was to clear for somebody else to make sure they didn't get caught so you're lying on the floor looking out the bottom of your door looking for uh, the rubber-soled sandal of a guard coming along so you can bang on the wall and alert people that a guard is coming. Remember, if you get caught com uh, communicating, you're going to be tortured. So communication means leadership. Leadership means torture. So you'd, sp you'd spend time actually looking out for somebody else. You'd spend time uh, trying to devise methods of communicating back and forth, boring a hole in the wall so you could stuff a piece of paper through the wall. Uh, you had um, all kinds of problems trying to teach. Can you imagine trying to teach somebody by tapping on the wall what the tap code is? Because once you hit the letter that's dropped out, for some reason our people were engineers, and they dropped out the letter K, which doesn't make any sense at all. So you're, you're trying to teach by repetition that box by repeating and repeating. And then you get to the letter K, which is dropped out. Well, the engineers were thinking of speaking. And they said, C's a hard sound. You don't need a K. Right. Well, it, it seems like um, very tedious, but I get it. I hear what you're saying. If if it's the only way you can do it, you're going to figure out a way to make it work. And, and so some of the other things that I was reading about communication is that you all would make ink out of brick dust and then mix it with water and then use that to write notes, pass notes to one another. Yeah, actually we discovered which, uh, Engineers and people in construction tell us that we're crazy, but there's such a thing as soft bricks and hard bricks. And soft bricks, you could make, uh, grind them into a powder and mix in a little bit of water if you had it, spit or urine, and, and make ink. You could use a piece or a sliver of bamboo and use that for a pen. So here you are, you, you make ink out of a soft brick. You use bamboo, a sliver of bamboo for a, a pen, and you can write on whatever piece of paper you can steal or find. So you can pass a note on to somebody else. So while all this is going on, you're, you're starting to communicate with your fellow POWs, and uh, the communication 
helps build you up a little bit. Uh, are you getting tortured anymore? Are they bringing you back for regular sessions in the torture chamber? When I was still in uh, Heartbreak Hotel, before they transferred me over to the zoo, I was being abused every day, a number of times a day, depending on what the status of the interrogation was. They were after a, a particular confession that I had bombed downtown Hanoi. I didn't find that out until later on, but that's what they were after. And once they put me over into the zoo, it would be a random thing that I ended up being abused. Usually it was because I was caught communicating. Okay, so I want to talk about this mad bomber of Hanoi for a minute. So why was it that they they used you uh, as this mad bomber of Hanoi anyway? Why, why did they want to bring you forward with that? Because I, I don't think you actually ever flew over Hanoi itself, did you? No, I didn't. In fact, I was squawking one time to the interrogator that actually wrote the whole confession. His name was the rabbit. And I said, uh, you know, I didn't even fly over town, let alone drop anything on there. And he said, what difference does it make? Somebody did it. Well, the reason that they got me was that there was a Christmas stand down between a bombing raid where the city of Hanoi was hit. And supposedly it was in a protected zone. The, our politicians had put a 10-mile square circ, uh, box around Hanoi, the district of Hanoi, and we couldn't bomb in there at all under any uh, occasion. And apparently some bombs dropped in there before Christmas. And the Vietnamese used that as an excuse to break off a peace initiative that was going on. But they needed to blame Lyndon Johnson for it, and the idea was that he went in and did a mass carpet bombing of downtown Hanoi. And I was the first one shot down after the Christmas break, and I was big nose, crew cut, ding-toed, pot-bellied. So bad timing. Well, I, I just looked like a mad bomber. I mean, I, <laughs> I hadn't shaven for days. I had a big beak, and I, I just, their caricature of the ugly American, I was it. Okay, so I wanted to go back for just one second uh, to Paul Galani again, to your first contact with him. You told me that, that Paul communicated to you that— uh, or Commander Stockdale at the time was the senior ranking officer in the camp. And uh, how did that make you feel? Uh, Admiral Stockdale, uh, Commander Stockdale at the time, is someone that you knew from before your deployment to the war. You met him at Stamford, and you two knew each other. So how did it make you feel knowing that he was there as the commanding officer? Well, Keg Stockdale had a tremendously positive service reputation. He was a test pilot. He did a lot of the test work on the early F-8 uh, fighter aircraft. Uh, he was a scholar. Uh, he had done a two-year program at Stanford. I ended up being his numerical relief, and we did a turnover about three hours one afternoon with him, and I was very much impressed with him. Uh, so it, 
I was in good hands. I did not feel that the people that were leading my air wing and my squadron were that good. And I knew that the Secretary of Defense and the President were anti-military, let alone not competent in military affairs. So to finally end up with somebody in charge that I admired and had a solid reputation gave me all kinds of confidence. Yeah, I mean, and what an impressive man uh, Admiral Stockdale was. So it it was good to, good to be on the same ship with him, even though it wasn't a great cruise, I guess. Well, it was, and, and eventually got to live in a cell with him for a while and appreciate the fact of why he received the Medal of Honor for his service in Vietnam. Well-deserved, and thank God it wasn't posthumous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're getting to a point now where where we're going to start get getting into the daily routine of being a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. But I do want to stop here for now, and we're going to talk about that next time because we have a hurricane bearing down on us right now, and I promised you a bourbon, and I'm going to go downstairs and pour that for you right now. I'm ready to go, my friend. All right, I love you. Love you, pal. God bless. Thank you.